It's the 12th month. It's the 8th day. The year is 2013. Our message is called Shamash. That's S-H-A-M-M-A-S-H. I'm just going to go ahead and confess to you, this was one of those battle-weary weeks, right? I remember when Jay was on the mission field, he visited here one time, and he said, man, you were looking at a beaten olive tree. Well, I feel that this week. Sometimes you're engaged in constant warfare, and you can't resent it because they're the battles you're supposed to be having. Amen? I mean, some things are worth fighting for. Godliness in your home, direction in your ministry, for people to achieve all that God called them to achieve. These are things that are worth fighting for. And uh, it leaves its mark. Iron sharpening iron leaves marks. It leaves its sparks. It leaves its smoke. And at the end of the day, love binds us all together. Amen? And that's how it has to work. It has to work that we speak the truth to one another in love. And then we love each other even after it was spoken. Can you know that sometimes truth's got to marinate with you just a little while? You ever been told the true thing that you hated when you were told and a good month goes by and your pride's finally waned out of your body and you, you figured out that was true? In Louisiana, we say true that. All right. So we're going to start our message in an unusual place today. Uh, you can turn to Daniel 8. We're not going to put it on the screen yet. I'm just reminding myself to get there. And uh, I'm going to give you a bit of a history lesson. Y'all know last week we talked about the Odyssey. Last week we uh, talked about a guy named Odysseus. And do you remember when he was traveling past the land of the sirens? He tied himself to the mast. Who was here last week? I speak to me. Say, I was here, Pastor. Now, look, we know that we want to be more than just tied to the cross of Christ. We know that what we want is a passionate love affair with Jesus, not just religious obligation. We know that. And I aimed my heart and soul at that last week. And I hope you've been aiming your heart and soul at it. But sometimes you're just going to go through stuff, right? Whether you're tied to that mast or you're clinging to the mast or you're an oarsman with beeswax in your ear, you still got to go on that journey. All right, look at your neighbor and say, be patient with me. I'm just going through something right now. If you're not going through something right now, then you're dead or complacent. So we're always going to be going through something right now, and that's okay. You're supposed to. And I'm going to tell you a secret. It gets exponentially harder and you get exponentially stronger. And it's supposed to. Yesterday's mountains are today's hills. That's why we don't spend our time looking in the rearview mirror. If you're touting yesterday's trophy, you're selling yourself short because tomorrow's is bigger. Tomorrow's portion of daily bread is bigger. The kingdom is growing. It's expanding. So our message today starts... With the death of Alexander in 323 B.C. They call him Alexander the Great because by the time he was 30 years old, he ruled the known world. I don't know if that makes a man great or not, but that's how history records him. In the wars of the Diodaci, you find out what happens to the rest of the world. Four 
horsemen, four men, four generals come out of Alexander's kingdom. It said that Alexander speaking Greek and forcing the world to speak Greek prepared the world for the gospel. When we had one language, then we had a way for the gospel to get to all peoples. Come on, God can use even wicked things as a blessing. The internet is unspeakably wicked. The imaginations of men's hearts can reach computer screens around the world. And they invent new ways of doing evil. And yet we also have a worldwide pathway for the gospel. Some faithful soul in Perth, Australia supports our ministry every month. And I never met them. I don't know how they know us. I wouldn't know that they supported us except I think they're the only one in Australia. At least they're the only one in Australia supporting us. The gospel is going out. And Alexander in 323, he died. He left four guys to fight for his kingdom. Ptolemy, Seleucid. Uh, you could say this name a bunch of ways, but we're going to call him Antigonid. You can imagine how much fun we could have with that this morning, huh? One of the brothers in the church said, you know, when you were talking about candy apple Christians, I know what your mouth said, but I heard your heart. (laughs) And then we're talking about Lysimachus. Those four generals split up the entire world, at least the biblical world. From one man, we had four branches. Those four branches fought with each other constantly. And the one that most pertains to our message today is the Seleucid kingdom. They reigned over Persia. They reigned out of Babylon. They reigned in what is ancient Syria. And the Seleucid kingdom produced some interesting people. And they have a serious effect on Bible prophecy, have a serious effect on the world, and a serious effect on your life. One of those Seleucids was named Mithridates. That's what his mama called him, Mithridates. And he, he ruled from 175 to 164. He was not satisfied with his name. How many of you remember when Cassius Clay changed his name? He had a religious experience. It's of the devil, but he had it. Like that line in that movie says, his mama named him Cassius Clay. I'm going to call him Cassius Clay. This man, Mithridates, was not satisfied with his name. He inherited a kingdom. He came into a kingdom and he ruled it only for about nine years. And in those nine years, he wreaked havoc on the world. The world knows him as Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes means God manifests. Antiochus Epiphanes marched into Israel to expand the Seleucid kingdom. Before we get to his march into Israel, you need to know some things about him. His own people, when he named himself Antiochus Epiphanes, used to murmur behind his back and say, no, his name is Antiochus 
Epimenes. Epimenes is not a dressing on your salad. It means the mad one. He saw himself as God manifest, but many of his people simply saw him as crazy. Now, you can be crazy in a good way, and you can be crazy in a bad way. In Christ, we're all a little bit crazy, right? It depends on what that craziness leads you to do. Crazy for Jesus or crazy worldly? This makes the gospel so much fun. You can take a man who is crazy worldly, see his whole heart and life change, and he becomes crazy for Jesus. Can you say that the apostle Paul lived a crazy life? He put people in jail. He imprisoned them. He stood by while they stoned Stephen. He was crazy zealous in a wrong way for God, but God got hold of him and made him crazy for Yeshua, the king of kings. This man, Antiochus Epiphanes, stands alone among people that in such a short time period affected God's people so much. But before he ever went to Israel, he invaded Egypt. Egypt was kind of a proxy state of Rome at the time. This is long before Christ. We're in the second century B.C. And the Romans have not yet conquered Israel. Pompey's not yet shown up. And the Romans are beginning to flex their might. God manifest goes to Egypt. And it so happens that there's a particular Caesar on the throne at the time who also believes he's God. And in Egypt, there's going to be a battle for Egypt. Never mind the Egyptians. Rome has an ego in it, and so does Antiochus Epiphanes, the Seleucid. How many of you ever heard the term, a line in the sand? Sometimes you just got to draw a line in the sand. What do we mean by it? It means you staked out a position, and I have, and we're immovable. This is my line. You might even be saying, I dare you to cross it. You ever drawn a line in the sand? If you've never drawn a line in the sand, you may just be a reed blowing in the wind. But an oak of righteousness is a line in the sand. And yet, as high and as lofty as those ideals are, we do not have a pristine, clean, beautiful etymology for that phrase. Lying in the sand was derived from Antiochus Epiphanes invading Egypt, being met by a Roman garrison. And the Roman garrison said, you need to withdraw from Egypt or we're going to kill you. He said, I would like to go back to my tent and think about it. Does that sound wise? I need to go back and consider. How many of you like time to think out what you want to do? Like time when you've asked, been asked a question to answer it. You want to consider what the consequence of answering it is. You want to consider everything that you should do. Well, this Roman drew a circle around Antiochus and said, this is my line in the sand. You have until you step out of it to decide. If the man stepped out of it, death. If he stayed in it and surrendered, life. So God manifest, surrendered to Rome. Lying in the sand. You know, the Lord will put you in positions where you have to draw a line in the sand. 
and to step out of the line in the sand is death. Have you staked out your position in Christ? Do you know where your family should stand? Because there's an eroding influence in the world. It tries to wipe away those lines. You know what's going on in Israel at the same time Antiochus Epiphanes is getting his incredible spanking from Rome? He's getting frustrated. He's getting mad. And he needs somebody to kick around. You ever had a bad day and took it out on the dog? If you buy an eight-pound dachshund, there's not much wrath that can be poured out on it. the same time in Israel, there's a great battle going on for the heart and soul of Israel. In the second century BC, you have a family called Tobiad, and they symbolize all that is wrong with Israel. They're Hellenized Jews. Now, some of you are looking at me like, dear God, we came to church. We did not want a history lesson. I understand. If you can't derive something edifying from this by the end of the message, then throw your hymnals at me. So, (laughs) Tobiah symbolized all that is wrong in Israel because they preferred to speak Greek as opposed to Hebrew. They thought it was foolish for the Jews to stay so separatist. It was silly of them to not want to participate in more of the Greek culture around them. So he built a gymnasium in Jerusalem. How many of you go to a local gym? No, no, let me ask it differently. How many of you belong to a local gym? (laughs) There we go. And you seem to inherently understand the difference. Well, Tobiad, he didn't just... Build a local gym. He encouraged people to go to it. And what you need to know about the gyms of the ancient world is they were full of nakedness. Or if you're from the south like me, nakedness. They had a hot side and a cold side. They had servants that did all kind of things that would only be acceptable in the years past in Las Vegas. Till recent times, it seems to be going on everywhere. This was a mar on God's people. It's a shame to the character of God's chosen to have something like this among them. Great cost, great expense, great lavishness, and great sin. You know, a man will invest in what his heart is in. Got a terrible time giving $1,000 to missions, but got no problem spending $1,000 on a high-definition television that was on sale. Do you think our missionaries are not on sale? Friends, they're going cheaper than anybody's ever gone. They're going further than anybody's ever gone. It's better than a sale at Kohl's and you can use Christ cash. You don't need Kohl's cash. You know one of the things that has pressed my heart more this week than any other? I'm going to go ahead and alleviate you. If you are financially responsible to the kingdom of God, this next sentence is not for you. But if you are not financially responsible to the kingdom of God, it is a crying shame that Matthew and I stand here today unpaid for the month of December. We paid all of our missionaries and we paid the rent on this building and the electric bill. Somebody left the heater on all week. Praise God for that. But we get to decide 
whose bread and fishes we want to multiply this week. And that's not what bothers me. What bothers me is the 15th is around the corner. And I'm worried about those orphans. And I'm worried about my friends in Romania. And I'm worried about my friends in Peru and my friends in Honduras. And all because I know that they're not working any less hard for the kingdom than Matthew and I are. And if we reach the 15th and we don't have money for them and us both, they'll get it and we won't. You know why? I drew a line in the sand a long time ago. Now, that is not to heap condemnation on anybody in this room. It's not. The work of God is hard. And it's resisted at every turn. And the problem with even daring to make a statement like I've just made from the pulpit is those who are faithful will kill themselves to be more faithful. And those who are unfaithful didn't even hear you. Guys, if you got ten carrots, one of them belongs to the Lord. I'm going to leave it there. Amen? Lines in the sand. He didn't just build the gymnasium. The Hellenized Jews didn't just want to abandon their language. They seemed to resent the very Torah itself because they didn't like the cultural distinctions it placed on them. It was okay to love Yahweh God. It was okay to worship Yahweh God. You just didn't need to worship Him and love Him in a way that so distinguished you from every other person on the planet. I mean, is it really necessary that we circumcise? They wanted to know. Of course, God told Abraham to circumcise his descendants. But the Hellenized Jews of the second century were fighting with their Hebraic counterparts over that subject. I mean, is it necessary to interpret the Torah so strictly? It's funny how similar the second century before Christ is. Does anybody believe that Jesus may come back in the next two centuries? Is there a man or woman in the room that can feel that in the next 200 years Jesus may return? Well, 200 years before his return, 200 years before his first coming, they were struggling with the same things we're struggling with now. How strictly do we really have to adhere to the word? How important are these battles? Can't we just all get along? I bet they had coexist bumper stickers for their camels. These tensions between the faithful Jews who still spoke Hebrew, who still wanted to practice the cultural distinctions, and the Hellenized Jews were growing to a fever pitch. And you know what? It provided an opportunity. I heard a Jewish carpenter once said, a divided house cannot stand against itself. There were cracks in the foundation in Israel. You know, when two people have different cultural backgrounds, whether it's that one's black and one's white, or one's Asian and one's Mexican, or one is from where you at, Al? One's from the north and one's from the south. You find reasons to justify your dislike of each other. So we had a little cultural tension going on in Israel, and guess who noticed it? Oh, that defeated God manifest from Egypt? that had just had his hat handed to him by the Romans, he found somebody to go kick around. He said, you know, I couldn't whip the Egyptians. I couldn't whip the Romans. But there's one people group on the planet that everybody hates. Let's go conquer the Jews. He shows up and he's brutal beyond description. 
Some 12,000 men killed in the first encounter for no other reason than they were Jews. God began to raise up somebody from a Hasmonean dynasty. His name was Judah. Judah Maccabeus. Judah the hammer. He was born in Modin, Israel. In about 167, he began to serve his people and his reign was only some seven years. His daddy was a high priest named Matthew or Matthias, if you like, and he had five brothers or he was one of five brothers. When this man, Antiochus Epiphanes, showed up, the first thing that he does is he carries off the golden altar. He carries off the menorah. He carries off the temple vessels. Why is it that when an antichrist hates God's people, he also hates everything that bears God's name? He wants to remove every way that they've ever known to access him. He wants to mar it beyond description. Maybe you come from a traditional church background. Maybe you met Jesus in that traditional church. And praise God for it. We all met him somewhere and we're all on a journey with him to where we're going. The devil works so hard to mar what we think about those places. He works so hard to mar anything that could be associated with God. When you say the word televangelist on an airplane, do you get giggles out loud? When you talk about a pastor and mention a secretary in the same sentence, even in the most innocent light, do you catch people frown at you? If you tell people, my pastor drives a beautiful maroon suburban, do they chuckle out loud? They don't ask you, is it a 1993 or is it a 2014, do they? The devil has worked to mar everything associated with God. In every little division in the body of Christ, every little worldly faction, worldly element, he will exploit. After he carried off all of those instruments. See, when Romans sacrificed, they didn't sacrifice lambs and goats usually. They liked to sacrifice pigs. Could there be anything more anti-Jewish than sacrificing pigs. And guess where he wanted to sacrifice his pig? Antiochus Epiphanes shows up, says, my name is the God that has manifest. I'm God among you. He walks into a temple and he tears down the things that have God's name on it. And then he begins sacrificing a pig to Zeus, king of the gods. If Jesus is Lord of Lord and king of kings, then Zeus is just a name. But he's trying to speak a message to the whole world. The God of the Jews is not really God. And these people that are supposed to be chosen are not really chosen. The next thing that he did was he forbade circumcision. Then he forbade kosher. Then he forbade meeting on Sabbath. Then he forbade reading the Torah. Altogether. Are there countries in the world today where you cannot read your Bible in public? Still illegal in lots of countries of the world, and it may one day be illegal in this country. Is it illegal in some countries 
for you to gather with those who love the Lord. Yes. And it may one day be illegal in this country, but do you know what paves the way for it? When the body of Christ can't stand together at all. When we'd rather fight with each other than the armies that are outside of our gates. The man didn't just sacrifice a pig in the temple. He cooked a pig in the temple for a meal. And then he poured the broth from the pig on their Torah scrolls. How yucky is that? He wanted to defile the word of God. Now I want to tell you something. A long time before Antiochus Epiphanes showed up, those Hellenistic Jews were defiling the word of God just the same. You don't have to kill a pig and pour its blood or its broth onto a scroll. When we read our Bibles and do not do what it says, when we interpret away its most obvious meaning, we're doing the same thing. We're profaning it and we're not an enemy of God. Sometimes, friends, you have to draw a line in the sand around what's sacred. And to do that, to know where to pop the line, where to drop the plumb line, you have to seek God's face. Does your family have immovable boundaries? I'm going to tell you one for me in 1993 when I realized how important it was to meet with the people of God. I told Jennifer, I'll never again work on a Sunday. And I haven't. I mean, I work every Sunday. But I haven't. That was in, I'm not saying that should be your line. Sunday's not the Sabbath, and I'm not trying to enforce that upon you. I'm saying that was a line for us. We also made the decision early on in our marriage that no matter what happened, we could throw things at each other, and we have. No matter what happened, we could yell at each other, and we have. Never would the word divorce come out of our mouth, and it hasn't. You have a line in your life around what is sacred. I decided that I didn't care what it cost me. My children would be discipled by me. <coughs> and they have been. I don't need their admiration. I don't need their friendship. I don't need from them because I drew a line in the sand that I had a responsibility that transcended all of those things to disciple them. And you know what? God's given me their admiration and their friendship anyway. Sometimes when you draw your line in the sand, friends, it opens up to a miraculous deliverance you never could have known was waiting out there. Because it might be the first time in your life your back was against the wall and you actually had to trust Jesus. I love that everybody talks about God's love and His compassion, and I love it. I love His compassion and His mercy. We don't hear with nearly the same frequency His sternness and seriousness about the holy things of God and that there's a standard that cannot be moved. When you draw your line in the sand, you stop even questioning whether or not you should bring the standard down to the men or the men up to the standard because the line is drawn. The Jewish compromise left them vulnerable to the enemy. And boy, did he do his work well. Are you all in Daniel 8? In Daniel 8, pick up with me in verse 8. By the way, Daniel's prophesying in some 512, 520 B.C., something like that. Listen to this, verse 8. 
The goat became very great, but at the height of his power, his large horn was broken off. And in its place, four prominent horns grew up towards the four winds of heaven. One of them, out of one of them came another horn, which started small, but grew in power to the south and to the east and towards the beautiful land. It grew until it reached the host of heaven. And it threw some of the starry hosts to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the prince of hosts. It took away the daily sacrifice from him. And in the place of his sanctuary was brought low. Because of rebellion, the host of the saints and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did. And truth was thrown to the ground. Some Bible scholars say, look how accurately Daniel prophesied about Antiochus Epiphanes. How accurately he prophesied about the four generals that would come out of the Greek empire. How accurately he prophesied about the desecration of the temple. How accurately he prophesied about a rebellion that would be going on in Israel that paved the way. Others say, no, he's obviously talking about the Antichrist who is to come. And like so many biblical answers, it is yes to both. History is going to repeat itself because the people of God are repeating our behavior. The debate in the church today is contemporary or archaic. The debate in the church today is how much of the world can we love and still be in Christ. It's not the church, though, that we have to worry about. It's us. We're being pressured all around us all of the time. Let me just say now, this is not the Hanukkah service. This is not the Christmas service. I reject both. Can I just be honest with you? I'm not asking you to. In fact, in my house, I have a tree right now because I love my family. Personally, I reject them both. But it's not a line I was willing to draw in the sand as to whether or not we had a green tree in our house. I don't like that plant here either, by the way. <laughs> or those. I wouldn't mind putting a deer head in here. I, I, I wouldn't mind having some leather. I, I'm, I just, I'm not a flowery kind of guy. Thank you for the candles, whoever brought those. They're beautiful. We have personal preferences and then we have lines in the sand. I'm not here to tell you where to draw yours. The book of Colossians says very clearly that one guy considers one holy and another... Doesn't. Romans 14 says the same thing about specific days. Colossians 2 says it about Sabbaths and religious festivals. So I'm not here to debate them with you. We can debate the merits of one over the other. I can give you the history of Christmas and 99% of you in here will get mad at me and there'll be a family or two that'll get happy because it's the truth. It's pagan. And I can talk to you about the way that Hanukkah is practiced today. You tell me that Jesus sat around with a dreidel and gambled? Are you kidding me? By the way, the real history of the dreidel is it was a way to study God's word, not to... If you're being occupied by a foreign power, what looks like gambling to them might be scripture memorization to you. Okay? There's a pressure upon God's people, Jew and Gentile, period, to assimilate into the world. 
By the way, those Greek Jews in the second century before Christ, they were actually trying to figure out how to uncircumcise themselves. I don't want to go into the mechanics of that for you. But it involves weights and skin. You know, these same debates existed in the first century. They existed in the book of Acts. How many of you have read that a dispute broke out between the Greek-speaking Jews and the Hebraic Jews because the Greeks were being overlooked in their distribution of daily bread among the widows? How many of you have read that? Some old divisions die hard. You ever had somebody treat you poorly just when they recognized where your accent was from? Yeah, I have too. I've done it to people too, though. Al, I repent openly about the barbecue in Kansas. The truth is the barbecue sauce is passable. It is. What I'm trying to say, friends, the division among them and the profaning and weakening of God's word among them provided the platform for Antiochus Epiphanes to step in. And when he stepped in, God did something. He raised up a man whose name means the hammer and the praise of God. The praise of God is like taking a hammer to the enemy. Now, I don't know. Right now, the thought of being in any kind of physical altercation, maybe that's why I got a a hurt arm. Have you ever tried to throw a football with your non-dominant arm? I can't even brush my teeth with my non-dominant arm. The thought of having to defend myself, I think I'd just ball up and cry. Perhaps, perhaps the devil was looking for an opportune time where God's people had so compromised themselves and so injured themselves that he could walk right in and do as he pleased. And he did. He did do it. In Exodus 27, starting in verse 20, say there when you're there. There's something unique that the Bible says has to happen. Are y'all bored? You have all this history memorized? I promise it's going somewhere. In Exodus 27, starting in verse 20, command the Israelites to bring you clear oil of pressed olives for the light so that the lamps may be kept burning. Anybody know what those lamps are? Those lamps are a seven-branched menorah for the seven spirits of God. Those seven branches represent the fullness of God's Spirit. And God's Spirit could not be recognized by oil with contaminants in it. God's Spirit had to burn or be symbolized by something that burned day and night, never would go out, and it had to be pure. Because of this, we have the term virgin olive oil. It's an olive that the pure weight of the olive itself extruded the anointing. No weight had to be put upon it other than simply it being what it was. This was the only kind of olive that could be used in the clear olive oil in the anointing. See, the more weight that you had to put on the olive to get it to do what it was supposed to do, which is bring out the anointing, the more flesh you got with it. How much pressure has to be put on you to do what God's called you to do? Is it your passion? 
Did you not just draw a line in the sand that commits you, but it is your passion? Or do you have to be forced by God, by whoever, to do what God called you to do? With every pressing, the olive became a little more profane to where it was only good for use on animals by the end. See, when Antiochus Epiphanes came in and he took the temple articles, one of the things that he took out of there, or at least destroyed in some way, was what they call the eternal light or the eternal flame that stood before the ark. This was symbolic to the God, God's people, symbolic to us today, of the Spirit of God which has never got a day off. He's there at night when you seek Him. He's there in the morning when you seek Him. He's there at midday when you seek Him. He's always there for you. Amen. Are you always there for Him? So when that flame went out, it was broken. It's messing up an image for the whole world. See, the Greek gods were unavailable at times. The Canaanite gods were unavailable at times. Do you remember Elijah taunting? Hey, maybe your gods in the potty or taking a break. Yeah, we all love that one, don't we? Because their gods had to do those things because they're not gods at all. But our God was always available for the people that called on him out of a pure heart. I, I didn't just hear that somewhere. I experienced it this morning. Broken. Beat up. And he spoke to somebody in the church that spoke to me and I recognized his words. Come on now. Is he trying to get your attention in here this morning? Sometimes it's a distraction arguing with Hellenized believers. It's an interesting word, isn't it? Hellenized. Affected by the world. Sometimes it's just a distraction arguing about details. Draw your line in the sand. Find out where God wants you to stand. Hmm? So... When Antiochus destroyed that menorah, he also defiled all of the sacred oil that would go in it. It takes some time for the weight of olives to produce enough oil to burn in a lamp. By the way, Judah, the hammer, Judah, the praise of God that is the hammer, his daddy, a high priest, the very last year of his life was the first year that Antiochus Epiphanes showed up. And when Antiochus Epiphanes showed up and he's cooking his pig in the temple and making the Jewish priesthood eat it, that old man, Data, I love you. I could see this in you. That older man, strong as an ox, stood up and he didn't just kill the Syrian general with the pig in his hand. He killed the Jew that was eating the pig. He saw them both as a threat to God's people. Not just the one causing the compromise, but the one that was compromising. That was the last year of his life, but what a way to go. 
and his son, the praise of God, Judah the hammer, he began to fight with Antiochus Epiphanes. And for the first time in Israel's history since the Davidic kingdom, they experienced the sovereignty of a God-appointed ruler and no other and no civil war. He purified the nation. It's called the Hasmonean dynasty, and it is the golden years of Israel since the days of Solomon. Because one man stood up. Do you know that history records and what I'm calling history are the book of the Maccabees? Right? We like to say they're apocryphal and they are. And I'm not suggesting they're on the par with Scripture. Do you think that the history book that you're reading edited last year is more accurate? (laughs) Have you ever compared a history book of the last hundred years to one now? It's amazing how it's being revised. So the Maccabees said that there were signs in the heavens when the man stood up because when he stood up, God recognized someone was fighting for his name. And he had a twofold battle, the compromise among his own people and the threat from without. And don't we have that very same issue? He won. He won and then something faced him. It was a terrible problem. The temple that represents God's name around the world. The temple in Jerusalem, what Daniel called the beautiful land. It does not have the symbol of God's spirit burning day and night. What happens to the church when God's spirit is not burning in it day and night? That temple's just a building at that point. It's worse than a building. It's a monument to a day gone by when God was moving. How indicting. When we stand around and talk about the great man of God of 200 years ago or 300 years ago, but you can't name somebody in that church today, the flame's gone out. Somewhere along the way, their line in the sand got moved. Somewhere along the way, what was bold and was radical became normal and assimilated and passive. How many of you know that the 12th chapter of Romans is warning us against that very thing? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It is a daily battle of erosion. So on the 25th of Kislev, Now, the Jewish calendar and the Gregorian Roman calendar are two different things. This year, the 25th of Kislev fell on November 27th. It was an interesting day. Because on the 25th of Kislev, they have rededicated, recleaned the temple, but they can only use the sacred oil you read about. And they can only find one day's supply. And guess how long it's going to take to make more? Whole week. Eight days before we'll have the oil that we need. Have you ever been faced with an impossible task and not enough stuff to do it? In the midst of that somewhere, praise has to rise up in you that hits the enemy in the forehead like a hammer. Somewhere Judah Maccabeus 
has got to rise up inside you and say, yet will I praise him. I'm staring at five loaves and two fishes. It's enough. Maybe your family's not quite where it should be, but is there something you can hang your hat on that God can multiply? Yes. Yes. Maybe your life in Christ doesn't look quite like you know it should, but has he done something for you that you can praise him for and trust that God will multiply? Yes. You know, Jews do something every year that commemorates this. It's the Feast of Dedication. The Feast of Lights, or some call it Hanukkah. And a Hanukkah candle is a special thing. It's not a menorah. You know, God himself designed the menorah. The menorah has seven branches, but this Hanukkah candle has one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine. I struggled as a Gentile. I didn't grow up around the things uh, of the Jewish nation, the things of God. I thought... How is it that we got eight days where God did a miracle and you got nine branches on your candle? And I struggled to figure that out, right? You know, Isaiah prophesied about a day when a Gentile lay hold of a Jew and say, teach me the things of God. We don't see it happen very often, but it's coming. See, during that Maccabean period, during the Hasmonean dynasty, they started with what they had. It took one man who was lit on fire and he lit the first candle and trusted God every day that there'd be enough oil coming. And God kept that candle burning for eight days, but it took one to start it. That one prominent candle in the center, the Jews call a shemesh. Shemesh is Hebrew for servant. It takes one servant who is on fire to light the first day and God will multiply it out for as many days as it takes. Oh man, if we could have one guy filled with the spirit of Elijah, if we could have one guy set on fire like the apostles. And why? Because when one guy set on fire, it has an effect on the others. Could we put Mark 10.45 on the screen? For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. What did Jesus come to do? He came to Shemesh. He came as a servant. Mark came to us in Greek, so you won't find that word there in a, Hebrew, in a Greek study. But what you do find is it's a translation of a Hebrew idea. You light one man on fire, one servant of God on fire, and then it begins to catch. How about John 8, 12? When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He became a Shemesh, friends. He became that miracle servant of God that said, you may not have enough oil, but I will light you on fire and I will multiply it until more arrives. Somewhere between the first candle, Pentecost, and the last candle, the resurrection, Jesus is multiplying His fire in us. You know what? 
Judah Maccabeus had at this point, though, at this point he had a nation that was fully convinced they were at war. He had a nation that no longer wanted to compromise with the world. When those guys came in that the Hellenistic Jews so admired, I mean the ones that were not marked at birth, by the way, I, I don't want to be graphic with this, but perhaps with our older and younger crowd, I can say it in a way you'll get it. In the Greek style of gymnasiums, they did all kind of exercises and none of them were clothed. And none of them had been surgically altered at birth. And so you could spot anyone that had. It's like an ID tag of sorts, except you got it on the eighth day of your life. And it turns out that everybody from a Greek background not only could spot those of a Jewish background while in the gymnasium, but they made fun of them for it. They said it was a sign of something sinful. They just wanted so badly to change who God birthed them to be. They just didn't want to be so different from everybody else. Oh, man. You ever seen people born in a Christian home? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand in here, but you've never known really what it was like to be so far outside the covenant of God, so kicked around by the world. And so what can happen to you is while standing in the protection of your home, you can long for what the world gets to enjoy and you can wonder what you're missing out on. That kind of thing is the spirit of the Antichrist that is trying to allure us into a place where the enemy can have his way with us. And don't think you're immune to it because you were radically saved at 20. The longer you serve Christ, the more you tend to want to climb the mountain and look and see what the world's doing on the other side. I mean, you're not going to do it. You're just curious, you know. I mean, do they really get interested in, in, in that stuff? I mean, what could they find interesting about? Well, I'll just peek. And gosh darn it, if it doesn't start to get a hold on you. Well, I've heard that story so many times. And it's funny because it shows up then as evasive from the people of God, wanting to stand at a little bit of a distance, coming in during the second song of worship and leaving during the altar call. It shows up in a way that says, don't look too deeply at my life. I've got some serious Hellenization going on in me. And I'm scared you'll notice it. And I want to be counted among the people of God. I'm just not really there right now, you know. And they tell you things like, don't judge, lest you be judged. They tell you God is love. Do you know how many Jews died over this compromise? Jesus is the light of the world. He is that great Shemesh that will light the other candles. Look at John 1, verses 4 through 5. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness... But the darkness has not understood it. Guys, he appeared as a light in a dark place. And that light is life. Having Jesus light something in your heart is life. Matthew 5.14 places us as the other candles. 
You are the light of the world, the city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Jesus said in John 8, I am the light of the world. But he says in Matthew 5, you are the light of the world. Because the effect that Jesus has on you, you're supposed to have on each other. It takes clear olive oil, friends. Nobody can beat you into a place you love the Lord. I've tried. I heard Charlie preach it many years ago, and I thought it was great. He said, son, if, if I could beat the gospel in you, we'd fight every day. But that's not how it works. I wish I'd listened to you way back then, Charlie, because I still try every now and then. But when the clear anointing of God is moving in your heart, all it takes is a response to him. What you couldn't struggle for, couldn't strain for, and nobody could beat into you. Just admitting to him, my temple's defiled. And I need you to make it whole again. I need a, I need a rededication, Lord. And he is that great servant of God that will plant the spirit of God in your life again. And then tell you, now go do this for other people. Now, we're in the days of electronic checking accounts, and I know that. I just got one for my son the other day. He's made some money working for JJ. And uh, I realized something. When I got my first checking account, I had to wait on a paper statement, Lindsay. I bet you did too, huh? You're a lot younger than I am, but you, you like details. And I waited on that paper statement, and I took my checkbook register, and I had to write out all of my debits and all of my deposits. And I had to balance it on the statement. Is there anybody in the room that remembers doing that? Is there anybody that still does it? I noticed that Judah didn't have a checkbook register and might never. He may even get a nifty little mark offered to him in his hand. I don't know how that'll work. But right now, all he's got to do is check the app on his phone and he knows what his balance is. They have an app for that. But those of us that come from the era, time period of having to reconcile our checkbooks knew that it had to be done often. The longer time period between reconciliations, the further your numbers got off. There you are, Alex. You understand the language I'm speaking, don't you? He's an accountant. I mean, when somebody brings him a box of receipts at the end of the year that they haven't looked at, or in the year, end of two or three years, that's not his favorite day, I promise. <laughs> but when they reconcile it every month, or I wish Patricia was here every week, say on a Thursday meeting, where you count the beans you don't have and pray for God to multiply, your reconciliations aren't as far off. This is why the secret to the Christian life is to always be repenting is to always be being reconciled. The secret to the Christian life is to constantly go back to that great Shemesh and say, light my fire again today. In fact, give me my daily bread. I don't want the Sam's visit that says, here's enough for three months and I don't have to come back. I need it daily. Turn with me to Matthew 12 in verse 6. Actually, we'll put them on the screen for you. You can turn as well. I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. There was a debate 
going on on what profaned the Sabbath. And Jesus wanted them to know that somebody greater than the temple was there. That's an interesting thing since they had fought wars to rededicate their temple. Guys, Jesus Christ is greater than the temple. He's not a brick building that represents God's name. He was a human being declared to be the Son of God with the fullness of the deity dwelling in Him. If wars were fought for the brick building, do you honestly think you're not going to have a few wars, maybe even in your own household, over the one that is greater than the temple? I'd go so far as to tell you that if peace to you is a cessation of hostilities... You will not make it in the kingdom. If peace to you is fighting when God says to fight, well, now you're on the right track. That's what shalom is. Everything's in its right order. Some battles you're supposed to have. You have to win the inner conflict before you can begin to speak. You have to have your own line in the sand. Otherwise, you have a PhD in the log and... I'm sorry, the speck in their eye and a GED in the log in your own. If you don't have your own line in the sand, how can you dare speak with the next guy about the purity or impurity of his oil? How can you dare speak with him about how he's relating to the rest of the world? Can we agree that there's a Hellenizing influence on the body of Christ? That there's a pull towards the world? We can all agree it's there, but how many can acknowledge it's going on in our own life? You know, it's funny. He's like, do you know someone who is a Christian that is being pulled at by the world so much that you can see it? Almost every Christian says yes, but they don't want to name them because that would just be rude. Some wars are worth having. But you might offend them. What's the consequence of not doing it? By the way, what happened when you stepped outside that circle that was the line in the sand? You died. You died. I wonder how many Christian deaths there are because the body of Christ has become so polite. Used to be that you expected a pastor to offend you. I'm offended with myself. I am. You spend a little bit of time with me in prayer, you'll hear it. I'm disgusted by my behavior sometimes. I was mad right before worship. Where are you at, Matthew? Right before worship. I said something ugly to Matthew. It wasn't about Matthew, but it was ugly. That'll hinder your worship. And what you do with it, that's going to determine how far you go in the kingdom. If you're a person that cannot admit fault... If you're a person that cannot suggest there may be fault in another, I want to suggest to you you're not like God. And we're called to be like God. We're called to have His judgment working in us. We're called to have His Spirit inside of us. We can all fall back on that we've all fallen short of the glory of God and by that mean that none of us are going to make the glory of God if you want. But the Bible says, be holy for he's holy. You know who I want beside me? I want brothers 
that are helping me hit that target. That love me enough to say, you may be my pastor, but what you just said was sin. You may be my pastor, but you're not always right, friend. Because you know what? You know who knows he's not always right? I do. Do you want something dramatically different from me? You want me to just tell you you're a champion? There's churches for that. I mean, if you can call them churches. There's this Hellenized of a bunch of Christianity as you'll find out there. About this time, somebody says, you know, Pastor, are you trying to run them off? No, I just want you to be here now. I want you to hear what I'm saying because I love you enough to say it. I love you enough to tell you about my own life and my own failures. I'm not asking anybody to do something that I'm not fighting to do myself. I saw the great Shemesh. I saw Jesus, the great servant of God, touch my life. And I have been working since that moment to try to touch the lives of others. Now, you can say I'm not doing a good job, and I'll agree with you quickly. You can say that I speak up sometimes when it's not God, and I'll agree with you quickly. I'll agree with you pretty quickly about most of my flaws. And if you don't know them, there'll be somebody in here that after the service will probably tell you all about them. But you know what I won't agree with you about? That I've refused to fight with Antiochus Epiphanes or my brothers who love him. Because I am trying, right? Joel, are you trying? I believe that. Joel's got a few battle scars on him, but he's trying. And after a while, you learn to love those who are trying. And you might even look a little bit discompassionate to those that you don't think are trying hard enough. My son's very matter-of-fact. I think he got that from his mother. (laughs) So he and I were pondering a great mystery of the world. We have a track outside of our house. Not a gymnasium. Everybody's wearing their clothes. Although sometimes not nearly enough. And there was somebody out there. And they're swinging their arms really fast. Top half was working. Bottom half was about... Like this, though. So a debate began to ensue. Is that running? Is that a fair question? Is that running? I mean, all the mechanics are there of running. Your one foot's going in front of the other, arms are swinging awful fast. But it's like how many licks does it take to get to the bottom of a Tootsie Pop? What I want to know is... How long can it take you to cover a mile and it still qualifies a run? (laughs) I had a PE coach that if you could not run a mile in 15 minutes, he made you do it again because that's a walk for most people. He said that was his line in the sand. You're not really running if you can't get it done in 15 minutes. Every year that goes by, I'd like to add a minute to that marker. Sometimes I have to acknowledge I can't run. I'm just going to have to crawl. At least I'm moving forward. 
And he said, well, would you rather me not try at all? No, that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying ask God to help you close the distance between you and the standard he set. Not saying give up altogether. And just because we point out like a loving pastor or a good doctor an area of infection doesn't mean that we're saying you're dead. I do it to myself every day because I want to make it in this. By the way, our conclusion was that the man was not running. Of course, if we went and told him that, he'd probably disagree with us. He was wearing his running clothes. He was in the place where people run. And he was going through all of the mechanics. And when he told the story of the conversation to those that love him, they would probably pat him on the back and say, of course you were running. Who do those people think they are to tell you that you weren't running? No more Proverbs for you today. John 2, 19 through 22. Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, It has taken us 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? Jesus is speaking about the temple that is his body. Jesus saw his body as the temple of God. And you could do your best to defile it, but God was able to raise it again. Have you defiled your temple? That doesn't mean it's the end. It doesn't mean it's over. The place where God's name dwelled was defiled several times in history in unspeakable ways. But God was able to make it new again. So you made a mistake. Join that very small circle of people who have. We make mistakes. So you sinned. You did something that was out and out against God. I've had debates lately about even what sin is. When you know you ought to be doing something and you don't do it, the Bible calls that sin. I shouldn't have to debate that. Do they know better than what they're doing? Yes, but it's hard for them. That doesn't mean it's not sin. It's hard for everybody. You can hate the tape measure if you want to, but the standard is the standard. And the difference between Jesus and the tape measure is that Jesus will give you his height. He will. He'll credit it to you and then help you get there. I said no more Proverbs. I'm sorry. Colossians 3.16. No, Corinthians 3.16. 1 Corinthians 3.16. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? We know these scriptures, but I bet we never thought about our temple being defiled by Antiochus Epiphanes. Our temple being compromised because of compromise with the world. I bet we never thought of the Spirit of God waxing and waning in our heart, not because He takes a break, but because we do. Jesus Christ will light that again. And He will use you to light it in others. And He will make whatever bit of righteousness you have, multiply and multiply and multiply so that on that day you're credited with 
his righteousness. The original Hanukkah was a time marked by the spirit of the Antichrist. And it hated the distinctions that being in covenant with God caused. Guys, we cannot hate the way in which the Spirit of God makes us different from the world. And we may not realize it, but we do hate it when we say things like, if I was lost, I would. Or back in the day, you know what I'd have done to him? Or so many other things that are really fantasizing about how the lost live. Draw a line in the sand. No more compromising speech. The spirit of the Antichrist hated the Torah itself. Do you love the word if we're talking about the prayer of Jabez? But hate the word when it says if you're at the altar and there have something against your brother, leave your gift at the altar and go to him. All right. I'm in my little confessional booth here. You've seen me many times in a prayer meeting in the morning in front of other people realize that I had a problem usually with a relative. Get up, go make the phone call, and before the week was over, get there. You know why? I want my oil to be pure. How much impurity can be in there before it's not pure? So much for the idea we're all pretty good before God. We're we're just okay. If there's a fly in the ointment, friends, it's defiled. If there's a gnat in the ointment, it's defiled. You know what I was trying to get to with rope burns? Many of us do all of the right things, but our heart is not in what we're doing. That's a fly in the ointment. I don't want to just do the right things. I want to love doing them. I want to love it. You ever set out to do a good thing and you did it in a bad way? Man, I've built things for people that were sacrificial, loving, amazing in an action. And the whole time I did it was angry that it was raining on me, that my stuff wasn't working right and that they didn't appreciate it. God is not interested in that. That spirit of the Antichrist in the first Hanukkah monopolized the Hellenistic influence to desecrate everything that was holy. I want you to understand that just a little bit of love for the world will take you further than you ever wanted to go. So understand something. In your house, you may not celebrate Christmas. In your house, you may not celebrate the resurrection under its worldly names. I'm all for your decision to do that. I'm asking you not to throw a stone at somebody else's house. In your house, you may celebrate Hanukkah as modern Jews and Messianics do around the world. And I'm not throwing a stone for you at that. Simply saying that this time of year might be time to think about the rededication of this temple. Turn with me to John 10. It's our last passages for today. God is raising up the prince. Praise Judah, the hammer. Signs and wonders accompany his movement. 
And he can overthrow the Antichrist who is trying to misrepresent God in your heart and life. He wants to restore purity and holiness. If you trust him, he's able to multiply provision in your life. Provision meaning godly things. In John 10, it says, Then came the feast of dedication at Jerusalem. You know one feast I'm sure that Jesus never participated in? Christmas. It's a third, fourth century invention. Christians have wrestled over this for so long that there was a hundred year period. It was outlawed after the Reformation. I'm not here to outlaw it. There's a tree sitting in my living room. But in the wintertime, we see that Jesus went to the temple for the feast of dedication. Jesus, on some level, definitely practiced a version, a first century version, of Hanukkah. Not saying he had a dreidel, Matthew. I don't know if he brought eight gifts. I kind of doubt it. See, Judaism is not without its flaws. What do you think little Jewish boys do when they see Christians giving gifts on December 25th? They go home and ask their parents, why do we have to be different? Can't we give gifts? Christian gift giving, at least what is supposed to be Christian gift giving in December, goes back to the 4th century. Much, much later than that in Judaism. You know why? They saw what the Gentiles were doing and they wanted to imitate it. When you get right down to it, none of our practices are pure. What you have to do is decide whether or not you want to boycott Saturday because it was dedicated to the god Saturn. When it comes right down to it, you have to decide where you draw your line in the sand and honor the Shemesh, the servant of God who lit a fire in your life. So as a church, we don't celebrate either one. As individuals in your home... You're going to decide where to draw your line. This is not the Hanukkah service. The better question is, what did Jesus say in December at the Feast of Dedication? It was winter and Jesus was in the temple area in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews gathered around him saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Boy, is that fair? If you are Jesus, if you are the Christ, tell me straight. Give it to me straight. How many people in the world do you think want to know, but they're convinced after seeing that great debate between believers? Do we interpret the word this way or that way? Is God doing this or not doing that? And they see the civil war and they see Antiochus Epiphanes descending upon the church and they go, who could really know? What do the Proverbs say about a righteous man who gives way to the wicked? He's like a muddy spring. In John 10, we have a great answer. Look at verse 31. Again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many great miracles from my father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, 
claim to be God. Boy, this is at the heart of the matter, isn't it? Do we act like mere men, every other man out there, pulled at by the world, giving in to what they give in to, or are we something more than regular men? Are we just a candle, or is there something supernatural about the fire? See, if all... The Feast of Dedication, if all Hanukkah was, was taking one candle to light eight others, you can do that anytime. There was something supernatural about it. Guys, in December, every year, what if we stopped to think about how plainly does my message declare Jesus was more than a man, he's God, and I am more than an ordinary man because he's in me. How clearly does your life display that? It might be time to rededicate your temple. How about John 10, 37? Do not believe me unless I do what my father does. Is that not a horrifying scripture? Of all of the times you'll hear lengthy sermons, maybe none quite so lengthy as mine, but of all the times you'll hear lengthy sermons, very rarely do you hear pastors stand up and say, you guys should not believe me unless I'm doing what God does. Why is that? Do you think that maybe we've been a little bit Hellenized? We're a little bit too scared to stand on our own two feet in what God is doing in us. How many of you have told your kids, don't do as I do, do as I say? Isn't that what most of our preaching is? I don't care how you really live. Just stand up and give us a good word. I want us to live a good word. I want us to live a good word. I want us to do it enough that if I think there's an area that you might grow in, I'll tell you, for a lot of people, that makes them uncomfortable enough to want to stay as far away from me as you can. And it's probably not the best way to grow a big church. Of course, every time Jesus drew a big crowd, he seemed to do the same thing. Happens when you care about the condition of somebody's temple. That happens. So you might ask yourself a question about your neighbor. Are you his keeper? And if you are, but I tell my own brother, sister, mother, daughter this. Would I tell them, do I care enough about them? Then what makes this one different? Jesus said, do not believe me unless I do what my father does. But if I do it, even though you do not believe me, believe the miracles that you may know and understand the father is in me and I am the father. Understand something. When we say what God says, when we do what God does, you're removed from the equation. It's no longer whether or not you look like Ken and Barbie. It's no longer how you said it. It's no longer anything to do with you. It's either your fire is burning and it was lit by God or it's not. If words are removed from the equation altogether... Does your life shine? See, Jesus was confident that his oil was pure. 
He was confident that his light was burning brightly. He was. Do you think we have to be less confident? See, if you're getting it right with him each day, then the reconciliations are not as big. Guys, you could take from this message that you should go buy a Hanukkah candle if you want to. My heart's desire is to bring you into contact with the Shemesh, that holy, fiery servant that can light in you a pure fire. And as it happens, for it to happen, we just need pure oil. He'll remove every contaminant from you. All you've got to do is be honest with him about it. I want to encourage you not to shoot for the minimum. To not look for the lowest amount that would still be acceptable to him. Because he didn't do that for you. If it were me, if I were Jesus, knowing all that the Father had given him, I would say, for you, I'll die. For them, not so much. The Gospel of John makes clear he knew Judas was one of the twelve and that he would betray. And he still kissed him. And he still died for him. Guys, he deserves our very best. So you can get mad, get bored. You can take your ball and go home. hope you don't but you can and the standards won't change they won't there's nowhere you can run Keith Green sang about this in the late 70s and early 80s you can run to the end of the highway there is nowhere you can go where this is any different because it's God's kingdom there are only people who treat it differently could y'all stand to your feet with me Romans 14, 5. One man considers one day more sacred to another and another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. In Colossians. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon, celebration, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. I would say that the real Hanukkah, the true Hanukkah, is not about the purification of an earthly temple. It's about the purification of your vessel. The Spirit of God is not interested in multiplying the number of candles or oil. He's interested in multiplying righteousness in your life. Everything that happened before, whether it's the appearance of an Antichrist, a Savior, and a miracle happened to point us to Jesus and to prepare us for what is to come. How prepared are you for what is to come? Are you right now right with him? Are you right now in a place where you would say, yeah, Spirit of God, examine me. You'll find no flaw in me. Because we just went through a whole worship service. Are you right now right with God.
Or are there little seeds, little problems that you were prepared to come here today, keep them, and go home and grow them? Guys, this is our chance to get right with God. It is. If you'd like to do that while we worship, we'll pray with you. I will pray with you. I'll even get right with God with you. I get a benefit, though. I got the last hour and a half to get right with God as I spoke. I haven't got to repent to Matthew publicly. Matthew, I repent for saying that ugly thing. It's good to have brothers, isn't it? Let's worship God together. It'll close our service. And if you're done here, if God's done with you, then you feel free to disperse any way you want. I got a feeling there's a few people, though, that like to purify their temple. And if that's the case, I want to do it with you, and we want to provide the right environment to do that. So we're going to worship together. Amen?